As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and with the resumption of the F1 season just around the corner, we tackle the big talking points of 2023 with the help of questions from the race's audience. McLaren's leap forward, Red Bull's dominance, F1's increasing electrification, and Ferrari's struggles are just a few of the topics we'll take on. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me with all the answers are Mark Hughes and Ben Anderson. Well, Mark, you're preparing to head to Zandvoort in uh, in a day or two, so enjoyed your August break and really raring to go, or would you like a few more weeks? Yeah, I think I think I'm ready to go back. Um, it's um, <laughs> for reasons we need not, not need detain us here. The holidays didn't turn out as as planned and didn't end up as being holidays. But um, I think we're all ready to um, to get stuck in back into this championship and uh, see if there's going to be any any variation in the second bit of the season. Oh, there's some optimism there, some hope that there'll be some wheel-to-wheel battles for Max Verstappen to fight on his way to more inevitable race wins. And also got Ben Anderson again, once again, in front of his trophy cabinet. So I imagine you're looking forward to racing getting going again. Yeah, the the August break's never really a holiday for me. It's just more kids getting in the way. It rolls seamlessly on. So yeah, very much looking forward to more racing. I'm not sure Max Verstappen's going to have many wheel-to-wheel battles, probably more battles with his own race engineer than with other drivers. But we live in hope, as ever. Exactly. And of course, there's the tantalising possibility of Red Bull winning every single race, having swept the first part of the season. I've been saying all year it's quite unlikely, but the closer it gets, obviously, the more likely it is, because there's less to do to deliver that. So yeah, that's going to be an enduring storyline until either they get to the end of the season or they get defeated. We've got loads of questions today. They're taken from our YouTube community, in fact. So thanks to everybody who fired in a question. We had a big long list and we've had to be quite selective. So we've picked out quite an ambitious number that we'll try and pile through today. So first up, a question for you, Ben, from at Tonka880, who says, if Sergio Perez doesn't lose his Red Bull seat to Daniel Ricciardo in 2024, what happens next for Ricciardo? Could we see him finishing 
starting his F1 career in a backmarker team like Kimi Raikkonen did. I think if Ricardo doesn't take Perez's seat for 24, which I think is probably the likeliest outcome as things stand, I imagine he does a full season at AlphaTauri slash Hugo Boss Balls Racing, whatever they decide to call it, um, and tries to convince Red Bull Racing anew for, for 2025. Also, the market then potentially opens up a bit more. You know, Ferrari, Mercedes, Perez's seat, Alpine have a seat open, Audi, Sauber, Aston Martin, plus the current kind of midfield. So he could potentially have many more options as well if he has a good season in 24. I don't really see him as a serious contender for the second seat at any of those big teams unless he absolutely blows Yuki Snowder away. And I'd say the evidence from the first two weekends, although limited, probably strengthens the case for Snowder, if anything over Ricardo. Um, that said, Red Bull's going to have to think about Verstappen, the succession for 2026, if he doesn't want to continue and see out his contract. Is Ricardo the safe bet there? Probably not. They're going to be looking at the likes of Lando Norris. So I don't really see Ricardo doing much more than he's doing now, really, in the midfield. In fact, he's having his Kimi Raikkonen homecoming moment now. He's back at the team where it kind of all began. So uh, enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, his key is very much insert himself into the driver market picture, probably for 2025, if that Red Bull opportunity doesn't crop up next year, which with Perez under contract, it shouldn't do, but you never know with Red Bull. Next up, a question for you, Mark, and I've chosen you for this question for a specific reason, given you wrote a piece that ran during the August break. And this is from at Siri A01, who says, should DRS be scrapped for qualifying? If so, which team could benefit from moving up the grid? I don't think there's any should about it, um, but it's being speculated about as a way of reducing Red Bull's domination of qualifying. And if that's the motivation, it's immediately immediately questionable from a sporting perspective, even if from an entertainment perspective, it's, it's easily understandable. But the word should suggest some merit-based sporting argument in favour of ditching it, and there isn't one really. Um, but it's often been the case that those in charge of F1 have, have tweaked the regs a bit with the intention of closing things up. It's a subjective call on whether that's okay or not. And Red Bull has been both the victim and the beneficiary of that in the past. But yes, I did an analysis on the website last week of the Red Bull's DRS boosted each track, and it varies enormously according to track layout and what downforce levels are chosen. Just to see what the difference would be of taking that DRS away. And the answer was that in most cases, it would have reduced the margin of Red Bull's pole, but not changed the outcome of Red Bull being on pole. Um, only in Austria would it have changed the identity of the pole sitter. It would have been Leclerc rather than Verstappen. Um, there's no other standout team that derives a disproportionate benefit or penalty from DRS. So in summary, it would make next to no difference. Yeah, certainly can't see there's a strong argument for that. Next up, a question from Matthew Lumsden, 3723, which I'll take, who asks, do you think Alex Albon will get another chance with a big team or has his time at Red Bull done too much damage for any of the big teams to take a chance on him again? Well, I'd say he might. If he's going to, it very likely would be for 2025 because he's out of contract and there's lots of potential for moves in the driver market. I think impressive as he's been, as we talked about on our last episode, his pathway to a top team would be as a de facto number two or a next best alternative if you can't get one of the established superstars. Not to sound like damning with faint praise, but that gets his foot back in the door. It's because he's a good driver they'd consider that. And from there, he then has to back himself to be more than that. Very effective, confident, rounded driver at Williams, as we talked about on our last podcast. And I think he'll be on a lot of top team shortlists, but I don't think he'll be at the top of 
a lot of top team shortlist, if you see what I mean. So that puts him in a nice position. I'm sure an opportunity will open up for him, but I'm not sure where it will be, whether it will be a number two in a top team or to spearhead an upwardly mobile midfield team. And of course, he could even stay at Williams. So yeah, I think the Red Bull stint will count against him a little bit, but I think they'll also recognise he was a diminished driver pitched into that situation a bit too early and they'll expect a high level of performance. But I don't think anyone's going to be signing him as the next big thing, but they'll be signing him as a very good performer who can do a good job kind of science bracket driver if you want to look at it like that and the next question I'm going to put to somebody who isn't with us but I got him to record it earlier Scott Mitchell it's a question from at Simon9548 who says are the 2026 engine rules bringing us one step closer to the merging of F1 and FE it feels like there'll be FE cars with a generator let's hear what Scott had to say well, funnily enough, Simon, when when I was um, covering Formula E uh, back from the second season of that championship, I remember having conversations with then CEO Alejandro Agag several times about the possible future combined or sort of aligned between Formula One and and Formula E because Formula E always had you know something that they shouted about a lot, which was this exclusivity as the only electric single seat championship and they had a very 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 long arrangement they claimed to that right so even if formula 1 wanted to go fully electric it couldn't because that's formula e's right what a gag would occasionally tease and certainly would entertain was the prospect of f1 and fe coexisting on the same schedule maybe not necessarily permanently but as a one off as you know a, a electric racing spectacle or or future racing technology spectacle, that that kind of thing. You know, they both use the Monaco full circuit now, for example. So could you do it that weekend? Probably not logistically. But I think that's where F1 and FE's futures potentially intertwine because I don't see the 2026 rules as being a, a threat or an indication of that kind of merger. I think at the moment, F1 continues to go into an increasingly electrified state because that's what the automotive market demands. And despite my personal opinion being that I'd like to see F1 wean itself off its reliance on manufacturers, or maybe not its reliance, but its often tendency to pander to to automotive manufacturers, um, I'd like to see it move away from that. That's just the reality of the situation. We know that the rules were set up to get more manufacturers on board. To do that at the moment, you need to have a more electrified power unit. I think if you could get into a position where the the, the automotive world was obsessed with hydrogen technology, for example, or the, the automotive world was obsessed with reviving and saving the combustion engine purely with sustainable fuels, that would be the technology that F1 uses and adopts, and that would be the future of F1. And we wouldn't be talking about FE or, you know, is it going to be an electric series in the future? I think it just reflects where the automotive world is at at the moment. Electric vehicles have been in vogue for a long time. They still seem to be now, but that isn't guaranteed to be the future in the long term. And even in the short to medium term, I think there's plenty of distance between F1 and FE. Next up for you, Ben, we have a question from at Stuart Falder 614, who says, with Lance Stroll being 100 points behind Alonso, at what point does Aston Martin consider replacing him and who would be the best option? I'd like to see Daniel Ricciardo as a left field option in this seat. Well, I, we have talked on a, a previous podcast about the Stroll problem at Aston Martin. He is too far behind Alonso, but really he's only likely to leave that team voluntarily. He's he's on a rolling contract in his dad's organisation. There's been some rumours floating around that he's considering a switch to tennis. So if he makes a career switch like that, that opens up the seat. Um, That said, I don't think he's keeping anyone off the grid who truly belongs there. 
I just think maybe he should be slightly lower down. If the seat were theoretically to come up for 24 or 25, probably a few ahead of Daniel Ricciardo in that queue. Albon, you've just talked about, Ed. Sonoda has already been mentioned as somebody Honda would potentially like to bring on board down the line. Even someone like Oscar Piastri, who's making waves as a rookie, you know, once his original McLaren contract comes up, you know, he'd be someone you'd look at very seriously, especially in Aston Martin's situation when you've got Alonso as established team leader, but aging and not likely to continue much beyond 25. So Ricardo, yes, big commercial appeal there and popularity, but he's got a long way to go still to restore his reputation to really compete for a top drive, although he would be a credible asset to, to most F1 teams. Certainly going to be a seat that's in demand if it is to come up in the next few years. Next up, a question for you, Mark, from at BIMS10, who says, as a new F1 fan, I've been very impressed with the league that McLaren has been able to make. How significant has this jump been when looking at the history of F1? What have been the biggest mid-season turnarounds when it comes to car performance? It's impressive, but it, it's not unprecedented. Let's put it like that. And uh, 2003, Williams BMW went from being off the pace at the start of the year to F1's fastest car by mid-season. Uh, 2006, Honda had an awful start, was often competitive in the second half of the season. McLaren itself went from slowest car of all, probably, at the beginning of 2009 to setting poles and winning a couple of races in the second half. We've not seen it so much in the hybrid era, uh, though. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it can happen. And, uh, yeah, it's been it's been quite impressive to see. And it's been helped along, I think, by Mercedes and Ferrari getting a little bit stuck um, in their development directions, um, probably just because of the cars that they've uh, stuck themselves with in the basic architecture. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's had a couple of relatively easy scalps there, I would say, but it's still, it's, it's been very impressive. Yeah, and certainly the fact the field is relatively condensed has helped that because a gain of 1%, say, will gain you more than it might have done in some seasons. But of course, there have also been other seasons that have been tighter, but very, very positive for McLaren. And now a question I'll take from at Noah Busker 2674 who says, Alpine scraps the 100 race plan. You're in charge of developing a plan to turn the Alpine team into a consistent race winner. What decisions do you make? Well, I think the first thing I will do is no 100 race plans or board-pleasing timescales. Pick the right team, boss. Give them autonomy to do what needs to be done. I think Renault and Anstone were at their best under the leadership of Flavio Briatore. And while I'm not advocating for him, but someone with the ability to keep the ownership at bay, chase some more commercial... Is he on your shortlist, though, Ed? <laughs> he's definitely not, no. He's, he's <laughs> giving an idea of the sort of thing that could work. And obviously there are things you can uh, you can criticise about uh, the way Briatore conducts himself and people do. But, uh, but it's the fact he's that team boss who can let the team do what it needs to do do the commercial stuff, keep the board at bay. I think that's really important. Uh, the top brass of Alpine, Carson Group, run. I need to back off and shut up, let the team evolve as needed without raining down on Enstone with politics and, and problems. Leave no stone unturned with a 2026 power unit, avoid a repeat of the seemingly never-ending stories about engine disadvantages. And in the long, long term, they want to recruit a gold standard driver, don't they, in order to make it a consistent race winner. That's uh, low down the list, but... Just let it be an F1 team. And if you've got to have your three-year, five-year plans, fine. I know boards want that. Do that. Don't talk about it in public. Don't tell the team about it because it's all relative in F1, isn't it? It's about improving, putting one foot in front of the other. And it's all about how well you do compared to the opposition. You could take a massive three-second 
a lap performance step forward next year, which would be very impressive. But you're not going to be winning the championship if Red Bull also takes a three-second step forward. So just keep improving, keep improving, make gains. You will get there eventually. So I think the short version of that is just calm down and you'll actually get somewhere because <laughs> there's a lot of very positive ingredients there at Alpine that can coalesce into something more successful, as indeed it did in 2005-2006 with Fernando Alonso and that Renault team under Flavio Briatore. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on to our second part of questions. Ben, once again, we'll start with you. This is from at Voidraker1736, who says, I would like to know what the end goal appears to be for Haas. How much longer will they bounce around in the midfield before Gene Haas and the powers that be stateside decide they've had enough and slap a for sale sign on the team? Well, this kind of suggestion or rumour around the team disappearing or Gene getting fed up tends to resurface every so often. Obviously, originally it was set up to promote his machining tools business to the wider world. I think they've achieved that goal. And F1 has changed quite a lot since Haas was set up, so I'm not quite sure the customer car model, let's call it that, um, is quite so aligned with the direction of travel now. When when Haas started or was being formed, you had Caterham had just gone to the wall, Man and Marisha went far off, Sauber in financial trouble, Lotus as well, Force India was living hand-to-mouth. Williams wasn't far away from heading towards an almost terminal decline. So basically only half the grid was viable. And this kind of shortcut model of limiting costs massively and taking as much of the car from a supplier as you could, I think made a lot of sense for a new team trying to get a foothold on a grid that was looking very difficult to stay on, even as an established independent. But now those teams that have survived have developed so much and Formula One has pushed on so much and become so much more attractive to manufacturers and partners. The midfield's really pushing up against the ceiling that was previously previously blocking them from the, the top teams. And I don't really see how Haas gets through that ceiling as it is. I know they've tried to expand a bit, but I feel like they, they're going to need a major overhaul, massive capital investment either from Haas himself or partners or by selling up to actually align with where Formula One seems to be going for 2026 and, and beyond. Haas and AlphaTauri, to me, are the most exposed teams in Formula One right now, and they both happen to have this kind of customer car model underpinning them. So really, I think the goal at the moment is probably just keep sitting on the franchise and try and drive the sale price up as much as possible and then cash out at the, the opportune moment. Yeah, there's certainly quite a bit at stake for them with the new team's entry, isn't there? Because Haas is one of 10 teams in F1, so it has a big value from that, and it'll still have a value even if there's more teams. But obviously, 
you only really get half a team because it is so dependent on Ferrari. So it would take a lot of work to upscale that team. Move on next to a question for you, Mark, from James Horror 8905 who says, why when we assess the performance of rookie drivers do we forget about Lando Norris's rookie year? He was solid but fairly average. Only now is he talked about as a future world champion with incredible talent. Should we give more drivers a chance to grow like him before dismissing them? Uh, yes, we should. There are there's huge variations in how prepared drivers are in their rookie seasons. And it's it's never a like-for-like comparison. It, it, this can be to do with their respective racing history, just as it can be about their own personal development. And, you know, as humans, no two are alike. And the best example of a late bloomer was probably Nigel Mansell. He just hadn't developed fully in his early years of Formula One and had had a very tough apprenticeship. And as a generality, when looking at the performances of rookies, it's it's the peaks that tell us the most. The averages can be totally, totally meaningless. And even if we look at Max Verstappen in his rookie year in 2015, yeah, there were some amazing peaks going second fastest in Monaco, first practice in a Toro Rosso, just two tenths slower than Hamilton's Mercedes on his first ever visit to the place, for example. But his average wasn't as, as impressive as that. He was on a par with Carlos Sainz, who was another rookie, but... Sainz had five seasons of car racing experience before being an F1 rookie, where Max had only had one. Similarly, Lewis Hamilton came straight into a top car and fought teammate Alonso on equal terms pretty much straight away. But again, he'd had five seasons of experience before. Um, Alex Albon, we talked about before, he got his break with Red Bull way before he was ready, but is now performing brilliantly well. So Lando's rookie year I thought was terrific, way more than solid, but that's from the perspective of looking at the peaks. So I'd say beware trying to judge things from statistics because context is key. Yeah, I must admit, um, I think Ben thought the same because he made a bit of a face up when the question was asked. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with the characterization of it as an average rookie season. If you, you know, Like Mark says, context is really important. And of course, he was up against Sainz, who was fairly close to Max Verstappen as, a, as an F1 rookie. But by the time Norris came in, Sainz is an established guy. So I think I think Norris did a pretty decent job in his rookie season. He lacked a bit of self confidence, which he's talked about himself. And once he once he found that and felt he belonged, he's flourished pretty much ever since. Must admit, I had a quick look back at my top ten drivers of twenty nineteen, in which I uh, I concluded that he showed he's seriously quick, capable of excellent race performances, needs to add consistency, but also described him as the the most unlucky driver on the grid on race day because the points ultimately didn't really recognise the level he'd, he'd performed at. So I think there's a good example there, actually, of how the yeah the, the raw numbers don't always do him justice. But I do also agree with the, the basic point that, yes, you've always got to look at drivers as a work in progress. It's where they level off and plateau that, that really counts. Next question, which actually is quite appropriate, given we're talking about drivers and rookie seasons and their level of improvement, I will take, comes from Haruki 1607 who says do you think Yuki Tsunoda will go to Aston Martin when they partner up with Honda of course that deal's coming in 2026 I think it's possible it might be surprising if it happens a lot can change in two and a half years what I know of the deal and how it financially works I don't think Honda's got any say in the driver I don't think it's going to be a Satoru Nakajima kind of situation I don't think they've necessarily got the leverage although they can say hey have a look at this guy and maybe could offer him on a decent deal. However, Sonoda is having a good season. He's progressing very nicely. So if he stays on a positive trajectory, there's every chance he could be a credible option, completely independent of the Honda influence. So it feels like there'll be others ahead of him in the queue. I'd probably say it's 
unlikely this far out, but there's a long way to go. And certainly it's possible. I'm not saying it's it's to be dismissed out of hand because Sonoda could definitely be still around in F1 in a few years and at the rate he's improving could be a very, very, very effective driver. Well, Sonoda actually is a good example of a driver regarding the previous question who's needed a bit of time to show more of what he's capable of. You know, he himself felt he was quite lucky to be given a second chance after his rookie season, didn't think he performed well enough. And because of the chaos around the Red Bull Junior programme, he's had more of a chance than he might otherwise have been given. And now is performing much better, you'd say, at a level well, where he's a very credible F1 driver and someone now we're discussing who might be worth a punt for a bigger team. Yeah, exactly. Things change quite rapidly, especially when you look at the wider development. He'd only had those seasons in F3 and then F2, so one season in each, having come over from Japan. So let's see how Yuki evolves. It could become a much stronger possibility over the next 18 months. Next, we'll have another one of the guest appearances from Scott Mitchell Maun. A question from at ZaneMart9877, who says, when is there going to be an announcement about Andretti and Hitech GP entering F1? Because I've seen somewhere on social media that the FIA is set to approve the Andretti and Hitech GP entries into F1. But that was a month ago. Let's hear from Scott. Yes, you're right. There were suggestions that uh, Andretti and Hitech had impressed and that the FIA side could recommend entries for both of them. So that is Andretti Cadillac, the project with General Motors Blessing, and Hitech, the junior single-seater empire expanding into F1. They they did recently announce um, major investment from a new individual. Um, So the suggestion was, yes, so that the FIA would approve Andretti and Hitech, but then F1 would reject them on commercial grounds. it's interesting because that obviously presented a potential worst case scenario for F1 to deal with, where there was this confusing situation of the governing body saying, we want these teams to join and then being granted entries, but then F1 refusing to engage in commercial discussions, there being no Concord negotiation, and therefore the two teams couldn't join because there'd be no commercial reward for them uh, to, to join. They wouldn't be able to do a deal that meant that they were allowed to be shown on television and you'd, it would be farcical. So eventually those entries would be repealed or never granted because in reality it wouldn't work. That would be the absolute worst case scenario because the FIA has to do things properly now it started this process. And if an applicant meets all the requirements from a sporting, financial and technical side, the FIA can't just throw the process just because it prevents a confrontation with F1 because we know that F1 are going to say no. They, they, they just are. Um, if the options are legitimate, then with what the FOA is in control of, it has to recommend that they're accepted or accept it from their side. But obviously, it's in everybody's interest that there's alignment on this. So with the reality, honestly, that Andretti and Hitech aren't going aren't to get F1 to, to accept them, unless something massively dramatic has changed behind the scenes or there's a, a new sudden legal threat that F1 hadn't anticipated because my understanding is that F1 did anticipate a legal challenge if or when they rejected high-tech Andretti, whoever. Um, There isn't going to be a new team from a commercial perspective. So there needs to be one joined-up announcement in which FIA and F1 say that two teams, if if this is the case for high-tech and Andretti Cadillac, of course, the announcement would need to say that, yes, these two teams the FIA believes after its thorough review, satisfy X, Y, and Z and merit a place on the F1 grid. However, it is understood, accepted, acknowledged 
that the F1 organization isn't in a position or isn't willing to engage in commercial discussions. So there will be no new teams joining the grid for the 2025, 2026 or 2027 seasons. It will be, it will be something along those lines. And it wouldn't surprise me if we're, we're pretty close to that. They might even want to get it out there um, before, before Zandvoort. Um, it, it, it can't be allowed to drag on too long, especially as if they are rejected, as like I said, I'm expecting, then there's no way that the Andretti side or the high-tech side are going to take that line down. I imagine that they will try to challenge it in some way. And it'll be interesting to see how F1 manages that if it does materialise. But it's better to get this out in the open, confront it, let the anger at the fact that no new team's coming in, that it's a closed shop and all of this, let that be dealt with. Because the longer this gets dragged on, the more we're worried about, oh, you know, is there going to be a conflict? Is this worst case scenario going to materialise? That's just not good for F1. So I would hope that there'll be an answer soon, but I don't think it's going to be an answer that ends in the two teams joining the grid. Well, thanks, Scott, for that one. And now a question for you, Ben, from Kavira Genosib4648. Some snappy names on YouTube. With Vasseur taking the reins of Ferrari and making serious changes, such as going on a hiring spree and restructuring the Ferrari technical department with Enrico, with Enrico Cardillo becoming the new TD and Montecchi taking over David Sanchez's role, do you think Ferrari can clutch back their rivalry they had with Red Bull in 2024? Or do you think to be a title challenger, they'll need to wait until 2026? And it'll just be a rivalry for P2 for the next seasons until 2026. Sadly and pessimistically, I think rivalry for P2 until the next big rule change happens for Ferrari. I think they're too inconsistent now. I think they missed their chance in 2022. That was the big one. The hiring spree will have time, will need time to take effect and bed the people in. I think I think they still have a body of work to do to fully understand their weaknesses technically. I feel in that process they're slightly behind McLaren, but just starting from a higher place overall in terms of performance. Red Bull just looked too far ahead for me currently under the stable rules for Ferrari to have a realistic chance of getting into that fight. They they have this pattern of starting a new rule set really well and quite innovatively probably also as a legacy of underperforming towards the end of previous rule cycles and devoting time earlier to the next set. But they just, no matter who's there, what the structure, who the personnel are, they just don't seem to be able to kick on and develop on top of those concepts. And other people seem to borrow their ideas sometimes and and go further with them. So from where we are now, I don't really see Ferrari as a credible title threat for the next few seasons. But I hope to be proved wrong. Yeah, that's what everybody wants to see. The more teams fighting at the front, the better. And Ferrari certainly has the potential. But as history tells us, even if they've got a car quick enough, who knows whether they can execute well. Mark, next question for you, which is kind of related from Arib Siddiqui 758. What is stopping Mercedes and Ferrari from making the huge developmental leaps that McLaren and Aston Martin have made this year? And is there any realistic hope that they can come up with championship contending cars for 2024? Hopefully it's nothing more than the basic underpinnings of the Merck and of Ferrari not being conducive to the sort of layout that's needed. And at least you'd hope it's that, and that it's not that they've simply not worked out what the development direction needs to be. The um, the 23 Aston was much more along Red Bull lines than those two cars, and McLaren has evolved towards that with its upgrades. Mercedes and Ferrari are still quite different. And when, you, when you're talking of tub shape, gearbox length, suspension pickup points, cockpit positioning those sort of hard-set things which can't be changed until you do an all-new car. 
you don't really know what you don't know when comparing it to the car doing all the winning. So there's still got to be question marks around them. So, uh, you know, given that they're starting from a significant way back, I think it's a big ask for anyone to come up with a, you know, a, a surefire Red Bull rival. Um, you never know. I mean, it, it, it surprised me that we've gone into the second season seeing Red Bull extend its advantage, and it's, it, it, it's almost as if um, the, the other teams hadn't fully grasped what the source of Red Bull's advantage was in the first year of these regulations, i.e. 2022, um, and just plowed on with their own in their own development direction without sort of stopping to smell the coffee and thinking, hang on, what, what are they doing? And you'd hope that that realisation has is, is come now and they, they, are, they will be coming up with cars that reflect that next year in which case you might, you know, we, we, we might see a, a sudden dissolving of that big gap that Red Bull suddenly has. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very complex uh, technical challenge and it may well be that they retain that advantage. I don't know. It's such a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because the opposition, Mercedes, Ferrari, they've got pretty clear ideas of what the things they need to change to unlock all this potential are and where the areas they need to look. But it's that understanding and execution, isn't it? Plus the question mark about whether do Red Bull have another step they can take that might change the game and move it on as well. So I guess that's the interesting question, isn't it, Mark? That even if Mercedes and Ferrari do make huge developmental leaps, as the question said, it doesn't necessarily mean that changes anything. Exactly, yeah. And you know, the Red Bull are starting from a position further ahead, and they, you know, they, they could well be finding all sorts of further things out as they develop further. So, yeah, do they stay one step ahead or or, or does, does, does the others catch up? And that, that's always a – you see you see various patterns emerge when, when a regulation has a whole scale, a wholesale change like we, we had in 2022. Um, and it, it, usually, it usually does increase the, 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 the gap um, – in the first year, but you usually see sort of um, coming together subsequently. We've, we've seen the opposite this time. Um, it reminds me a little bit back of it, the, the original ground effect revolution that Lotus did um, in 77, and you expected all the 78 cars to be copies of that, and there weren't. There was only a couple. And it took, an, it took until the following year before um, teams got their heads around exactly what how that car derived it its performance so it's maybe something more like that yeah exactly it's going to be great to see the trend when we get a few years down the line you can see it with all the detail filled in exactly how it pans out there's always the possibility that we will see big steps forward and ultimately if red bull is still the best at it then they deserve to win a lot of races next up a question i'll take from asset singh who says what is the possibility that aston martin delayed their upgrades so they could stay lower in the constructors championship at mid-season and get more wind tunnel time I'm going to say the chance of that are nil. You have to remember as well, the cutoff was effectively the Canadian Grand Prix as it's the end of June after six months that you have the reallocation and they had a good weekend in Canada. Alonso was second. They had a major upgrade package for that weekend with a new floor, among other things. They've had four race weekends since then where performance has been patchy rather than shown an uptick, which is what you'd want to see after the cutoff if they were playing any kind of strategic game. So I don't think the performance pattern matches up with any attempt to do that which actually makes sense because the benefit would be dwarfed by the potential negatives because a place in the Constructors' Championship, if you're in any way doing anything that will cost yourself 
championship points. That will cost you 10 million plus, which will have a knock-on effect. So Aston Martin have been developing as quickly as they can. They feel that they introduced some characteristics they didn't want or rather some characteristics they thought would deliver better net performance but hasn't done with some of those upgrades. So I think really it's just that they've slightly stumbled in terms of development progress at a time when others have taken some big steps because it's all so tight that can make the difference between finishing second in races and being talked about as Fernando Alonso getting his next race win and being down there finishing fifth sixth eighth and ninth as they have been in recent races so yeah I don't think teams do that are they not also a little bit more focused on the long term of 24 and beyond because they've overachieved this season I think both Alonso and Mike Crack have talked about this being a bonus almost and that if they had no more podiums for the rest of the season they'd be happy because they never expected the number they've already got so I would just wonder if there's a slight mindset mindset shift against this season in favour of kicking on again the following year and that might affect their development approach. Yeah well everyone's got to balance that up as well I think it'll depend on what kind of battle they're in aren't they because they were second in the constructors for a long time they could easily still finish third and they could come back against Mercedes. So I think probably they'll want to find. They keep saying they want to push on and close the gap to Red Bull. But yeah, it is a fact that whatever your competitive situation is, whatever you're fighting for, does have an impact on how you allocate resources and development. And we always talk about focusing on next year versus this year development as if it's almost a complete on-off switch. But it's not. It's uh, As Gary Anderson would like to say, it's more of a dimmer switch and exactly where you set it. And Many of the factors will contribute to that. But I think Aston Martin have been trying, but I think they also are aware that maybe they were flattered a tiny bit pre-season. They're really focused on that sort of gap to Red Bull and chipping away at it. And because they're strong opposition, that's coming back at them. So, yeah, I certainly don't think they're playing any games, but it's uh, it's it's just one of those things that it's not necessarily that easy to stay a second best but I'm sure they will be more parts in the second half of the year they say there will be at every race is the phrase they used although with how congested they are I imagine it won't be every single one but uh, we shall see in the second part of the season I think how Aston Martin responds to this will be very interesting but I think whatever happens the overall trend extremely positive for that team we'll get back to the pod in a moment but first a word about our partner Grammarly No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, let's move on now, Ben, to a question for you from Sam K. TH1QR. The past few seasons have seen a shift towards even more narrow street circuits, with the cars now wider than they've ever been, and we now compromising side-by-side action in favour of bringing F1 to the masses. Well, I'm not sure I agree with the premise of that question, that the street circuits are getting ever narrower. The newer ones, to my mind, Jeddah, 
Miami, Vegas by the looks of things. They seem relatively fast flowing, almost conventional in places by design. I think you can apply this to the traditional venues, Monaco being the prime example. The cars are for many years, because they've been getting fatter, way too big for that circuit, but kind of always has been like that. The unique challenge of Monaco has been trying to keep those cars out of the barriers rather than racing them wheel to wheel. And of course, F1 is minded that Monaco should reform itself anyway now that the Bernie Eccleston era is well in the rear view mirror. So I, I think Formula One is mindful that the street circuits need, as they come onto the calendar, to produce good racing. They want to bring Formula One to the people by having races in cities, but they can't just have 10 Monacos. So I, I'm not sure that that's a, that's a fair question. Although I do agree, obviously, the cars have been getting bigger and bigger and probably too big. Yes, yeah, certainly they're, uh, they're enormous. I don't think that for overtaking having cars wide, I mean, they're only 20, 20 centimetres wider than the narrow track cars were before they widened in 2017. At a place like Monaco, that net 40 centimetres, if you want to think about it, car by car, side by side, yeah, that'll be enough to make a difference. But I don't think it's fundamental. Actually, the length of the cars probably makes more of a difference in terms of the, the overtaking. But uh, yeah, the move, the move to more street circuits, it's, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? It depends on the quality of the circuits. What I find a bit frustrating is a lot of them tend to be gimmick-based ones. So you want the fastest street circuit or you want the street circuit that's got the longest straight or this, that and the other. Although Baku's been good, hasn't it? You know, well, Baku's been great, but that, I think yeah. they need to just make sure that when these circuits are being designed, they need to be designed as just good all-round race circuits, not to have one sellable thing that you can put on your posters and claim it's this, that and the other. So that's the thing because there, there, is, there are going to be more street tracks. That's just the way of it now. See Madrid's on the horizon, probably. That's not a done deal yet, but it seems to be going that way. So, yeah, interesting to see how that trend develops. Next up for you, Mark, a question from Matt Zarate5922, who says, do you see any parallels between John Lacey and Charles Leclerc at Ferrari, aside from the fact that Leclerc has won more than one race? It seems to me like Ferrari is wasting Leclerc's talent, either through subpar machinery or dumb strategy decisions. It's interesting that you can always make historical parallels if you if you look closely enough. They often don't really mean very much. It's just random patterns. But in the case of Ferrari, there, there are some themes in there throughout a lot of its history, and that can't be coincidence. And it can be a turbulent place. It needs a lot of very tough managing. And it, it had that during the, the Ross Braun, Michael Schumacher, Jean Tott era. It's drifted away from that since back more to how it was. So yes, Alessi was there in that pre-Schumacher era, and Leclerc is there a long, long time after it. But as drivers, I don't see any significant parallels. I think um, Leclerc's a much more accomplished, all-rounded, more rounded performer than Alessi with a, a wider skill set. But yeah, I mean, some of the some of the team shortfalls um, do have a very familiar ring to them throughout the ages. Yeah, you know, I think Leclerc's a more all-round driver, isn't he, than John Alessi? Who had a lot of speed, but I think. Formula One moved away a little bit from John Lacey after he broke onto the scene. Being with Ferrari didn't help, and it may have been completely different if he'd gone to Williams instead for 1991. But yeah, I think, it, I guess it's the question of whether you've got a driver who's got the machinery to deliver on what ability they do have. That's perhaps the closest parallel there. And certainly, we want to see Charles Leclerc having a championship challenging car. You could maybe also make a case that Leclerc is being slightly driven by his emotions in sticking with Ferrari and Lacey was obviously a famously quite emotional driver. And the clerk obviously has a special bond with Ferrari as a team and 
what it was trying to do with Jules Bianchi before, before he died. So I feel the clerk is very conscious of living that legacy and trying to do and achieve what Jules wasn't able to. And he desperately wants to do that with Ferrari, but it's not necessarily, as Mark was describing, the most sane or right place to be trying to achieve that goal. It might come good, but I think a colder, harder look at the situation would probably lead Leclerc away from that team if he wanted to achieve his goals. That said, with Red Bull running away with it, it doesn't really matter what car you're in unless you're in Max Verstappen's car at the moment. I guess that's reflected in the fact that Leclerc Mark is holding off on the new contract. I know there's talk of a willingness to sign one, even rumours he's come to some form of agreement, but it makes sense for him to hold, doesn't it? See what happens. It does, yeah. There's a, there's a lot could change um, in the next year or so in the driver market. So, yeah, it would be very much a case of um, not being in any, any hurry to uh, commit himself. Yeah, and he's got the luxury of being very much in demand. Ferrari will obviously wait for him and plenty of other teams will be interested, including, of course, Mercedes have been linked with him. And we know Mercedes like Leclerc. I think anyone would be wise to look at a driver with that level of pace. You can argue he's the fastest driver in Formula 1 over a single lap, which is always a Slightly reductive statement, but I think that does show, you know, he is stunningly quick. There's no question. He's driven some great races as well. Next up, a question I'll take, which is from at Beauty of the Struggle, who says, how can the sport make the car smaller and lighter again while retaining all the safety insulation and electrification luggage? That's a very good question. Obviously, the 2026 regulations are pushing for smaller and lighter cars, but it's very, very difficult. The FIA had a good look at what they could potentially take out of the cars, and they identified an opportunity of maybe 30 kilos in terms of weight reduction, which when you're talking cars that are only just shy of 800 kilos really isn't a great deal. But it is better than nothing. It stops that creeping rise in it, which I think is the number one priority. The wheelbase will be a little bit shorter, maybe 30 centimetres shorter, probably a reduction in the number of forward gears. There's talk of switching to smaller wheel rims as well, which will save a little bit of weight. They're currently 18 inches, up from 13 inches previously, and the talk is of them maybe settling somewhere in the middle, 16-inch wheel rims, perhaps yet to be finalised. But there's just a lot of weight to carry, safety equipment, the bigger batteries. It's hard to see a dramatic step in that direction. And if you look at questioning how can you actually do it, it's very difficult to know. Certainly the power unit's a possibility. You could go to a much more simplified conventional power unit and just have a a, a normal V8 engine or V10 or whatever. But that's just not going to work with the way Formula One is, with the manufacturers involved, etc. It's just not really viable to kind of go back to the future, as it were, with that. So I can't see that happening. And I think the priority is just, for for starters, stabilise the weight. Say, right, we will not go further than this. And then use that to shape all future rules decisions and then maybe over time it can edge back down a little bit but i think the days of ultra light cars sub 500 kilo f1 cars is probably gone unfortunately which is a shame because they look absolutely brilliant on track and uh obviously mark you've been uh, watching formula on track side for a long time you really can see it can't you from a car of 15 years ago compared to today on a quick lap just that sharpness and that responsiveness that they look more alive yeah especially through slow speed corners and and Break and then change direction into, um, you know, into and through a chicane or something like that. It looks just different class of car altogether. And um, yeah, we 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 saw that when um, remember when Alonso gave that demonstration of the old um, the normally aspirated Renault at Abu Dhabi, and uh, yeah, just it was like um, a breath of fresh air, wasn't it? But you know, things move on. 
Um, we, you know, in, in terms of what we could do about it, it, it it's pretty much been defined already. The, 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 if we're going to go with electrification um, and, and hybrid, that that's pretty much it defined, really. If you if you change the parameters of which we're allowed to think about it, um, I would have favoured something like going to a much, much smaller engine, maybe a one-litre turbo screaming 20,000 revs um, with a much smaller car, much lighter, and would use less fuel. Make You know, you could put some um, hybrid part on it, energy regeneration, but it would use a lot less fuel than the existing ones and make fewer emissions. And we, if we went in that direction, um, I think it would have it would have made a much more interesting sort of car, and uh, we could have got something I think probably more raceable as well, and uh, that wasn't so um, so tire dominant. So um, yeah, but that's not the way. Uh, the powers of B have chosen to go, and that's not the way the automotive industry um, was going to be attracted to it. So ultimately, that's what's won out. Yeah, very much the die is cast on this one. But yeah, it would be interesting to go much more aggressive in that sort of direction, see what you come up with. But yeah, we're, we've got a trajectory set now. So yeah, it's going to be just whittle away at the weights, maybe you can get a little bit of that 30 kilos off this time, get a little bit more next time, and then gradually perhaps it'll come down. But yeah, it's going to need some technological advancements as well to do that. Next up, a question for you, Ben, from Gerald Alate. Why don't Mercedes poach as many engineers as Ferrari and Red Bull, especially when they're having trouble understanding the new regulations? Well, I'm I'm sure they would like to. Every team's looking out for new talent, better talent that it can attract to bolster its organisation. When you compare specifically to Red Bull and Ferrari, I think there are a couple of important caveats. You know, Red Bull were able to poach staff because they set up a specific new engine project not far from where Mercedes was based, and it makes sense to try and recruit from what was the best V6 engine operation for that. Ferrari, lots of chaos there, a bit of an exodus after the Bonotto era, so that creates a little bit of headroom. You need some some senior people in to, to augment that structure and replace those losses. Mercedes itself, Total Wolves mentioned before how they went through a very painful downsizing process to be ready for the cost cap era. And I'd, I'd imagine that inevitably means letting some senior staff go or shunting them aside, replacing them with internal promotions to balance the books. So they're a little bit hamstrung by being, I think, one of the biggest, if not the biggest teams through the pre-cost cap hybrid era and inevitably needing to shrink to fit the the new model, whereas their immediate rivals have specific circumstances that have aided them in in this particular circumstance of needing to to find people to supplement what they're doing. And I think there's also a fair amount of rotation, as it were, between teams as well. There's lower level people who you never hear about who move from place to place so people will have come into Mercedes from other teams as well but yeah various factors you explained there it has a a bit of an impact next up for you Mark a question from Dean Pratt 1698 who says 
These aren't questions about the season, but I hope it gets picked up because I've always wondered, does a driver hold their breath or tense their muscles while cornering at high speed like pilots do? And how do they focus for 90 minutes without wandering off about something else? The argument they had, whether they left the oven on, etc., like I do all the time. Finally, does a driver ever feel lonely in a car? The pressure to perform must be so enormous. <laughs> Interesting questions. Um, <laughs> you d- actually, you do hear drivers, um, particularly Lewis Hamilton, sometimes talk of, holding their breath during intense concentration on a particular corner on a qualifying lap. But usually, no. Um, they, they're breathing normally, and obviously they're physical cars, so they're using a muscle but not, not tensing excessively. Um, as for focus, part of the training is about brain economy. In repetition of the task makes the brain much more economical, creates spare capacity, and they're, 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 they're very sophisticated ways of monitoring how much blood flow is going to various parts of the brain and uh, when, uh, when they're doing tasks. It's a, it's a part of their, just their, their regular training is uh, brain economy. Um, sometimes when a, a driver really gets in the zone, they, they describe what sounds to be an almost zen-like state where everything is happening automatically in a flow. And they're, they're just sort of above that, just observing almost. And... Um, Nigel Mansell used to talk of having a nap and ask to be woken up if there was anything he needed to know, you know, over the radio. So, uh, no, I don't don't think loneliness is an emotion you'd feel in a race, but who knows? I guess these are questions for each individual. But I think generally, once you've committed to being a racing driver, you're not going to be half-assed about how you you approach it, not at this level. So, no, uh, what's in the oven or did you buy the dog food? It's not going to be making any any, any, any impact on them. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're going to need to be mentally tough, so that the pressure's self-imposed. It's always there, and you'd always be putting it on yourself anyway. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's a, it's, a, it's a different existence to the humdrum. Well, we've each of us all raced, haven't we? So, you guys must know that when you're in the moment of racing, you're not thinking about what task you did or didn't do at the house, or what you might be having for your dinner later. You're focused totally on the race in front of you or the session in front of you and how to go quicker and what the car's doing, et cetera. And like you say, Mark, the, the brain capacity, the more spare capacity you can engineer into yourself, that's what defines the elite drivers from the humdrum, the ones who are able to do things under complete calm and control and able to think about everything else, still focused on the race, not what's going on at home or what have you. That's what sets them apart. The ones who can't do that don't get to the top. Uh, although the one thing I did find quite interesting is that Lewis Hamilton, although obviously he is one of these elite drivers, you do occasionally get examples of him coming on the radio during a race sounding out of breath. So there must be situations uh, and certain circuits that are so physically demanding and the prevailing conditions perhaps so demanding that he even he's running at an oxygen deficit sometimes. It's interesting as well because obviously a large amount of what drivers do is trying to get into that zone for the race duration and there's various ways you can measure it as mark alluded to but you can see how much more that's improved over time because if you go back into the past you always remember talk of drivers falling asleep in races or whatever and needing to be kind of nudged or whatever to uh to, to kind of wake up but you don't really hear that so much i mean occasionally you have people having bad stints for whatever reason but i i, I don't know what you 
thing, Mark. I don't get the impression that there's kind of stints where people just sort of settle back into not being quite on it. I think sometimes there's times where they're struggling with the tyres and they... Shall, shall we call it the Fisichella phenomenon? Yeah, well, that's that's the perfect one. Yeah, yeah come on, Fisichella. There's no way you can be this slow. That famous Alan Permain message, which is great. Well, there are many Alan Permain messages to uh, Fisichella. But I don't think we see that so much now, do we, Mark? It's more drivers. If they've got a problem, sometimes they'll compound it and they'll go half a second slower when they've only got a problem that's worth a couple of tenths. But they'll be focusing on that problem and that will be slowing them down rather than just they've kind of fallen off whatever little mental plane they need to be on. Yeah, I think the level of training is is better now and I think the level of understanding of the brain's capacity is is better now. Um, and also they've got a lot more to focus on in, in, in terms of managing the car, managing the tyre temperatures and the, the brakes and the, how much... How much to lift and coast and how you offset that against the uh, tire management and or, or, or whilst you know working out what the what what pace you can run at without um you know getting yourself into a deficit later on all these things are requiring a lot of um mental agility really and yes they're in constant communication with the, the pit wall and um that you don't really get the opportunity to to go asleep so um, yeah, it's it's it, the the challenge changes all the time, but it's um, yeah, it's 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 not it's not something that would allow you to um, to just wander off and and be somewhere else. Is there also an argument, perhaps, to say that this modern era of extreme tire management, Formula One, let's call it, where you do stints to pit stops on one tank of fuel for the whole race, is actually less demanding from a driving point of view and therefore creates a bit more spare capacity for the the other things because it's interesting to me that when you get to the end of races with when the fuel burns off and you're in a pressure point I think uh, at Spa McLaren were talking to Norris and he had Lewis on his case and he was saying don't talk they start saying don't talk to me I'm on it I realize I'm under pressure I need to get on with it and you 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 feel their capacity shrinking slightly I imagine in the refueling era of Formula One, when everything had to be more flat out between the pit stops, actually it was more intense to drive because you were having to actually physically drive faster all the time rather than kind of waiting for the car to come alive later in the race. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to that, um, and I think you you know you um, you used to see drivers they did appear to be more physically exhausted at the end of races during those um, those flat out sprint era races. Yeah, it, it always changes, doesn't it? The parameters of of what you're doing as a driver. So yeah, perhaps there's less sort of physical demand and less sort of on that edge if you're doing a full stint in a refueling era, for example, under uh, when you're really just trying to bang in qualifying laps. So yeah, it is interesting how that demand's changed, and yeah, it'd be fascinating to throw perhaps some of the young drivers into that situation. I'm sure they thrive in it anyway. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting subject. And actually, I'm going to throw in a book recommendation now. It's, it's a book that's been out for a while, but it's one called Overdrive, Formula One in the Zone by Clyde Brolin, which was released about 12, 13 years ago, I think. But it speaks to lots of drivers. I think even Mark Hughes is quoted in it, uh, in that book. But it, it's just very interesting, different drivers talking about what represents being in the zone. And it just gives an interesting sort of smorgasbord of, of opinions and experiences that will, I think, add a little bit of understanding to the topic we've just been talking about. 
Well, thanks very much to Mark and Ben for your insight, and thanks to everyone who sent in questions. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for all the latest in the build-up to Zanvort. Also have a listen to our other podcasts, which include the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, Bring Back V10s, our IndyCar, MotoGP, and Formula E podcasts. And if video's your thing, head to our YouTube channel, where you'll find the YouTube community we sourced today's questions from. Well, the Formula One season is getting back up and running, so stay with us for everything you need to know from Zanvort. <laughs> 